Well, Merry Christmas Eve. Okay, I'm just being friendly. Um, it is hard to describe what new parents are feeling and thinking when they get to hold their own newborn in their arms for the first time. I've had the privilege of doing that four times. And in those situations, I was filled with wonder, I was filled with awe, I was filled with joy. One of the questions that goes through the mind, I believe, of every parent who holds their child in their arms for the first time is, who will you be? You're looking at this child and you're wondering, who are you going to grow up to be? Now, we know that Mary had the very same question lingering in her mind when Jesus was born. Even though she had been visited by the angel Gabriel, who told her that she would conceive a child and name him Jesus, Gabriel told her what seems plain to us. He said this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The identity of Jesus was announced again, of course, then when the shepherds relayed to she and Joseph what the host of angels had told them in the fields. They said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now to us, reading these true accounts and, and then the rest of the New Testament 2,000 years later, it seems obvious who Jesus was. But for them, it must have been so overwhelming, so perplexing. And so, of course, it says in Luke 2, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So despite all of the angelic announcements, it would only become crystal clear who Jesus truly was in the decades after his death and resurrection. The New Testament authors all wrote essentially to answer that question. Who is Jesus and why did he come into the world? We're considering one of the most important passages in the Bible packed with deep explanations answering that question. Who is Jesus and why did he come into the world? Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. And Joanne, if you could bring me my Bible, that would be great. A preacher without his sword is not good. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first four verses in Hebrews. Follow along with me as I read. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us as we study his word this afternoon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The sermon, in a sentence, is listen to God's final word to us through His divine Son. Listen to God's final word to us through His divine Son. Now, what we learn from verse 1 and the first few phrases in verse 2 is that in Jesus, God has spoken to us in a unique and final way. He says, of course, long ago, at many times, and in many different ways, God spoke to not us, but our fathers by the prophets. And then the next group of phrases basically is parallel to that statement. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God spoke to His people in the Old Testament through prophets. This would include, of course, visions and dreams and riddles and even direct speech to people like the patriarchs, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as well as all those leaders of Israel who came after them, men like Moses and Samuel, David and Joshua. And then, of course, all the prophets who wrote down God's words, which then became all those prophetic books that are in the Old Testament. Prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea and Malachi. Now, the author of Hebrews argues throughout the rest of his letter, or we could call it a sermon, actually, which is what it is, really. He argues that the days of God speaking through prophets in various ways has come to an end. Now, he says, we are in the last days, and God has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Christians are often curious, of course, are we in the last days? There's probably an infinite number of YouTube videos and religious TV shows of people trying to tell you whether or not we're in the last days yet. Well, guess what? The New Testament authors are clear that we are in the last days. And we have been in the last days, in fact, ever since Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. That's right. We've had 2,000 years of last days so far. We are in them. We continue in them. One thing that we should stop and ponder before we begin to unpack the phrases in this 
these verses that teach us about the identity of Jesus is that God would come and speak to us at all. It is a great mercy and a great kindness of God that he would reveal himself to us. He didn't have to. He is God after all. He can do as he pleases. But he has graciously spoken to us to tell us who he is and who we are and how we're designed to live and what the future holds. He's told us everything important that we need to know. And all of the most important communication that he has for us is in the Bible. God's word is in Scripture. All of this is God's word, in fact. And so God's, when we say that God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son, we're saying that all of this is Christ's word to us. Every single person who was inspired to write down the words in this book was inspired by Jesus Christ. And so we hear God speaking to us when we read God's Word. You can hear God speaking to you any day of the week when you open up your Bible and you study it with a soft heart, asking the Lord to speak to you through it. In addition to that, We hear God speaking to us through His Son when His Word is preached. So even today, as I preach God's Word to you, you are hearing God speak to you if you will only listen. If you want to know what God has to say to you, read the Bible. Even though some of the writings in the Bible are as much as 3,400 years old, God is still communicating to us through His Word. He communicates to us through His Word and His Spirit. Now, the rest of these four verses, beginning with the second half of verse 2, they list seven reasons why Jesus, God's Son, is his final and greatest message to us, his word to us. The first thing that we learn about the son is that he has been appointed the heir of all things. Each one of the points that I'm going to walk us through basically finishes the sentence, he is, so the first point is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. When Jesus came into the world as a baby born to Mary, he was already the eternal Son of God, taking on a human nature. He already had a divine nature. He had a divine nature, and then when he became a baby, when he became a man, he took on a human nature as well. Two natures in one person. The first characteristic of Jesus relates specifically to his human nature as the Messiah sent from God to rescue his people. In the verses immediately following these first four verses, the author of Hebrews explains where this idea of Jesus being appointed the heir and inheritor of all things comes from. He teaches it quoting Psalm 2, 7 through 8. And, of course, we 
had that read aloud to us as well today. This is what verses 7 and 8, just to remind you what they say from verse uh, from Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, excuse me, and the ends of the earth your possession. Do you see there that in these verses, the son is receiving a heritage and a possession, an inheritance, we could say. He's, he is God the Father promising his son an inheritance. Now, some of you may have parents who have talked to you about what you will inherit when they die. Maybe it's property. Maybe it's money. Not all parents have possessions to leave to their children, but it is frequently something that happens. Often parents will have a will or a legal document that states who gets what of their earthly belongings when they die. Joanne and I have a will, and we describe where our belongings should be distributed should we die. God the Father has appointed Jesus the Messiah, the inheritor of all things and all people, the nations, it says there in Psalm 2, and all the heavens and the earth as well. Theologians debate about when Jesus, in his role as Messiah, was appointed the heir. When did it happen? When did he become the appointed heir of all creation? It makes most sense to locate it at the time of his resurrection and ascension into heaven, where he sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and still sits there today, reigning and ruling. Romans 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So there we see Paul linking his appointment or declaration to be the Son of God and the inheritor of everything at His resurrection from the dead. Jesus in His humanity had earned His Father's inheritance by His obedience in His life and by going obediently to the cross to save sinners. Everything in the universe is Jesus' inheritance. He owns it all because his father has given it to him. You and I are a part of his inheritance. Each one of you is owned by Jesus, whether you recognize it or not. You belong to him. He made you. He created you. He designed you. And so when we live our lives for our own goals and purposes, rather than for his we're rebelling against the Son to whom God has given us. We are His. And as His inheritance, we should live for Him, brothers and sisters. Are you listening to Jesus, your Maker and Master, when it comes to your life goals and your purpose in life? If God has given us as an inheritance to Jesus, His Son, we should live for Him and for His purposes alone. The last part of verse 2 teaches us 
that Jesus the Son is the creator of all things. That's the second point this afternoon. The heir of all things and now the creator of all things. And we see that and we can say, we can label these parts of verses as A, B, and C. So this is 2C, verse 2C. Now this one and the three that come after it, these characteristics of Jesus, all relate to Jesus' divine sonship. So that first one being appointed the heir is related to his messiahship, born out of his humanity. But here we see the beginning of four characteristics relating to his divine sonship. In other words, characteristics which he had even before he took on flesh and was born a man. And the first of them tells us that God created all things through Jesus, the divine son. He is supreme because he created all things. We learned that, of course, in John's gospel, which we just finished preaching all the way through, took us two years. We saw it at the very first, in the first chapter of John, John verses 1, 2, and 3 in the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. If you had any doubts, John, our gospel author, wants us to make sure that there is nothing that exists that Jesus didn't make. When God created, He created through the Son. When God said, let there be light, the Son, Jesus, caused light to shine. In fact, all three persons, of course, of the Trinity were involved in creation, including the Spirit. But here, the Son is identified as the one who created. Thinking on this, of course, it leads to amazing, deep truths that are difficult to even get our minds wrapped around. So Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was the one who created Mary, his very own mother, and the one through whom he was born when he came into the world. Jesus created Mary and then was born through Mary's womb. Jesus created the sun. Jesus created the moon and the entire Milky Way galaxy. I saw on the news just this past week that astronomers recently took new detailed images of a beautiful spiral galaxy with two spiral arms trailing it that made it, makes it look like a big sparkly pinwheel. Its nucleus is powered by what they call a supermassive black hole, as if there are black holes that aren't supermassive. And guess what? It is 275 million light years from the earth. In other words, its distance from us is how far light travels over the course of 275 million years. That's how far away it is. Jesus made that spiral galaxy. That spiral galaxy exists to glorify God. From the DNA in your body to the galaxies at the edges of the universe, Jesus made it all. Jesus is the supreme and final word from God because he's the creator of all things. 
Now we're moving into the heart of this short passage with the next two characteristics of Jesus, and they explicitly tell us that Jesus is God. The first is the first phrase of verse 3, and it tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That's the third point this afternoon. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Just like sunbeams that issue from the sun itself and, of course, cast shadows on the earth, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. We see how He is how we see the glory of the unseeable God. In fact, the famous Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod writes, The Father is glory hidden, the Son is glory revealed. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, he could say to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Son of God is God. He's fully God. Now, the next phrase complements this description of Jesus, and it's there in verse 3. We could say B, because there it says Jesus is also the imprint of God's nature. The imprint of God's nature. That's the fourth point this afternoon. This word imprint is describing how a die is used to press a design into a coin. Or maybe how a ring, a ring is used to press a symbol or a diagram into hot wax that seals an envelope. The design on the coin or in the wax seal exactly matches the die or the ring that was used to create it. In fact, if you were to pull a dirham out of your pocket or your purse and look at it, do you know what's on it? An Arabic coffee pot. That's what's on your dirhams. An Arabic coffee pot. And on the other side is an Arabic numeral one. Each of those is pressed into each one of those dirhams with a die that has those images etched on it. Jesus has the exact nature of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Not close to it, not some of it. He is the exact imprint of the Father. From time to time in our services, we recite together some of the oldest creeds of the Christian church. Creeds are basically theological summaries of what we believe that the Bible teaches. And for centuries, even millennia, Christians have come up with these creeds to help them remember the most important Bible truths. That's how these creeds serve us. And one of these creeds, the Nicene Creed, from the year 381 A.D., says this about Jesus. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, 
true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now, all of those truths in that creed are very, very important truths. And this creed is simply saying what this phrase in Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, what these two phrases are saying, essentially. In the early centuries after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, a heresy or a theological error, that's what a heresy is, arose which said that Jesus had not existed for all eternity. These people said that Jesus was a created being by God. He had a beginning, they said. This heresy was called Arianism, named after the man who propagated this heresy named Arius. He argued it before various church councils. Thankfully, he lost. (laughs) Arius refused, and all his followers refused to recognize the book of Hebrews, the entire book, as true scripture because of verses 1 through 4 alone here in the first chapter. They didn't believe Hebrews. It was not in their Bible. To say that the Son of God is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature is to claim that He is eternal like the Father and shares the same eternal nature with the Father. He is of the same substance as the Father. You can be confident to know that to know Jesus is to know God. Jesus speaks only truth, just as God speaks only truth. Jesus is compassionate, just as God is compassionate. Jesus will judge, just as God is also our judge. We know God through Jesus Christ, His Son. The next phrase tells us more about Jesus and His divine sonship, and we see that there Towards the end of verse 3, we see that he is the Lord of providence. Now, you don't see those words right there, providence, in that phrase. But I want you to write that down. That's the point, the fifth point here. He is Lord of providence. The phrase specifically in that verse reads this way. Look there with me in verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this is saying more than that Jesus sustains all of creation. Of course, He does that. The molecules in your body are hanging together because Jesus is upholding you. He's sustaining you. But the word translated uphold here has the sense of carrying something to its desired end. It actually includes a sense of time. J.I. Packer describes the providence of God as His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. He's telling us that Jesus is guiding all of creation throughout all of history to its desired end, to His desired end. Not only did Jesus make everything, He keeps all creatures alive, involves Himself in all events, and directs everything to end the way He wants it to end. Jesus is a hands-on God. 
Not a God who made everything and then sits back to see what happens. We call that deism. But that's not the God of the Bible and that's not Jesus. Jesus is completely in charge of the world. Now there's a great deal of mystery, of course, to how God does this in a world that's so filled with evil and sin. How can God be in control of everything? But the scriptures are clear. God is in control, and we must never forget it, especially in times when we're experiencing pain and loss or hardship and suffering. Because Jesus is the Lord of providence, we can be confident that nothing random or unexpected is happening to us ever. We're never in the grip of blind forces. I mean, for Christians, there is no such thing as luck or chance. And everything that happens to us is a new opportunity to trust Jesus, to obey Jesus, and to rejoice knowing that God is working everything out for our good. That's what it says in Scripture as well. Not for our comfort, of course, but for our good, our spiritual good. Now, we're just a week away from the end of 2023, aren't we? What do you see when you look back over the last year of your life, this year? Were there hard things, trials, and tribulations? I'm sure there were for every single one of you. Was Jesus in control in the midst of it all? Absolutely. Without a doubt, Jesus was in control. Never let your mind stray far from the truth of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even our trials and our sufferings. Jesus is the Lord of providence. The last two phrases in these four verses tell us about the characteristics of the Son of God in His divine Messiahship again. It started with His Messiahship, went to His divine Sonship, and then ends with His design Messiahship again. So like the first one where we learned that Jesus had been appointed the heir of all things, these last two characteristics tell us something about what He accomplished in His life and death and resurrection as the God-man. At the end of verse 3, the author tells us that he is the sanctifier of all believers. That's the sixth point. He is the sanctifier of all believers. The phrase specifically reads, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is, like John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made purification of our sins by His death. And you might notice that phrase there, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down indicates that Jesus completed the task. He was done. The author of the book of Hebrews later on in the book makes the point that the priests of the Old Testament times 
had to stand, figuratively speaking, continuously because they had to keep making sacrifices over and over and over again. But Jesus made a once-for-all sacrifice. As Jesus said on the cross, he said, it is finished. And we know that it's a sacrifice for all who would eventually trust in him. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He goes on two chapters later in chapter 9 to say this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he's speaking of heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The eternal Son of God became a man to sanctify men. Brothers and sisters, this is at the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came to make atonement for sin, to cleanse our consciences. You see, of course, we have sin in our lives. You know it because you, you and I can't even fulfill our own best intentions, generally speaking. We fall short. And we certainly fall short of God's perfect standard. He's holy, pure, nothing wicked or evil in Him. But we've sinned and rebelled against Him. And so we've been separated from Him. There's no way that a holy and pure God can have us in His presence with sin. And there's nothing that we could do about it to make it right. But Jesus came into the world, the perfect Son of God, to live a perfectly obedient life, to go to the cross and to be a substitute for us, taking on Himself the wrath of God, shedding His blood, blood that now when we put our trust and faith in Him, washes us clean of our sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's the gospel, that's the good news, that Jesus sanctifies sinners. Jesus saves through his sanctifying work on our behalf. Paul summarized why Jesus came in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's that simple. Jesus was born so that he could die for us to cleanse us. We sang about it earlier in this service, didn't we? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you have sin, Jesus is ready and willing to purify and sanctify you. He can wash you of your sin no matter what it is. 
if you're not a Christian and you've come here on Christmas Eve, we want to make sure that you feel especially welcome. You're welcome any week to come and join us on a Sunday afternoon at 3. This is a great place to learn about Christianity and to learn specifically about Jesus. You, my friend, have sin in your life, and you need to be washed clean of it. And Jesus can do that. Won't you trust in Jesus? Won't you believe in Him as the true Son of God? the one who came into the world to die for sinners so that we could be made clean before our holy God. He will separate you from your sin as far as the east is from the west if you trust in him. Micah 8 tells us that he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The last phrase that describes the supremacy of Jesus tells us that he is the exalted ruler of all. We see that in verse 4. He is the exalted ruler of all. It says there specifically in verse 4 about Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews in the rest of Chapter 1 is going to drive home the point that Jesus has inherited a name that is far superior to the name that angels have received. Now, we've already seen that word inherited or heir. We saw that back in verse 2. Why would the author argue about the name that Jesus has inherited, that it's greater and far superior to that of angels? It's not because they were tempted particularly to worship angels. Instead, it's because the Old Testament Jews knew that angels were the messengers that God had used in the Old Testament. He spoke through angels as well as the prophets. It was through angels that God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. But now, of course, he's told us that God has spoken in his Son, and he has inherited a superior name. The son has. Psalm 8, verse 5 says this, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now this psalm is speaking about Jesus. Jesus was made lower than the angels in his incarnation when he took on flesh, when he was born a baby to Mary. Psalm 110, which we also heard in our service earlier, verse 1 refers to Jesus' ascension. It says in that verse 1 of Psalm 110, the, psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the majesty on high. He's earned a name that is superior and higher than that that the angels have through his obedient life and death. And so Jesus' resurrection and his ascension are his reward from God the Father. And it's ours as well when we trust in him. We then begin to share in all that Jesus has earned. 
in his humanity, the name that Jesus has inherited is Son. Son is his name. In the Old Testament, different people filled the roles of prophet to bring God's words to people. Others filled the roles of priest to mediate and enable sinful men and women to approach God who's holy and can't have sin in his presence. And there were many who served as kings over Israel. Prophets, priests, and kings. But in Jesus Christ, all the roles are fulfilled in him and him alone. He is the prophet who made everything and guides everything and speaks God's final word to us. He is our great high priest who has made a once-for-all sacrifice to cleanse us of our sins. And he is the exalted king over all people and all creation who has inherited everything and been crowned king over all. He is the one sitting on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now think back to Mary holding baby Jesus as the shepherds turned and went back to their flocks. She was holding the Son of God who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. She was holding the one who would make atonement for everyone's sin and would be appointed heir of all things and ascend to sit on the throne of God. No wonder she pondered these things in her heart. Listen to this poem that speaks of Christ, the Son of God, and also a baby. See this child for whom all things are made and by whom held. This mighty one, begotten son, has come with men to dwell. See this child with undefiled nature now asleep. This righteous one, beloved son, will scorn and murder reap. See this child with tiny hands who cries and must be fed. This lowly one, a virgin's son, is everlasting bread. See this child with infant smile, whom heavenly hosts proclaim. This worthy one, the royal son, shall be for sinners slain. See this child in swaddling cloths and in a manger laid. This gentle one, this promised son, has come to kill the grave. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, our days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Listen to God's final word to you through his divine Son. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the kindness and compassion of revealing yourself to us in Christ. We thank you for all that he has done for us. We thank you that he is our prophet. He is our great high priest. He is our king, our soon and coming king. Lord, even now as we 
ponder and think about your incarnation. We pray as well that you would help us look forward to and anticipate your second coming. A coming not in weakness and frailty, but a coming with power and glory and the hope of consummating our salvation. Oh, Lord, we look forward to that. That is our hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus was long expected. He had been foretold in the Scriptures. All of the Scriptures, in fact, point to Him. Let's sing about this long-expected Jesus. Turn with me to page, I believe, 14 in your bulletin and stand with me. Please stand with me.